He also, Barnsley, was born in 1998. So, oh. you know, no, what's most upsetting about that is that I could be his mum without even being like a slag. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. Welcome to. Oh, Captain, my Captain, my name is Mark Olver, and I'm, I am here with the wonderful Mr. Ricky Masindo. Hi, Ricky, how are you? I'm good, Mark. How's it going? Do you know what? I'm all right, buddy. I'm not too bad. It feels like real life is, is getting back to normal. I do have this, this thing, though. I was talking to someone. Podcasts stay around forever, right? Yep, yep, they're there forever, permanent. This is a view of what the world is like during lockdown, because we are recording this sort of mid-April 2021, but people could be listening to this in a year's time, in two years' time, in five years' time, because it, it's not topical. It's always relevant to what stand-up is like. Is that going to be weird for people? Should we pretend that this isn't lockdown, or should we always reference it? <laughs> well, I guess you want it to have a bit of staying power obviously but uh like who knows what will happen in a couple of years time maybe next year the internet will just stop working and podcasts will be a thing of the past so you can't plan for everything that's true so if you're listening to this uh in a podcast thank you if you're listening to this on vinyl thank you <laughs> if you're listening to this in 10 years time because Ricky Masindo has just been nominated for an Oscar. Thank you. If you've been listening to this in 20 years' time, because Ricky Masindo has just been arrested, then again, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. And I'm not guilty, whatever they say. He is, but we'll, uh, we'll come to that in a future <laughs> podcast. This is the penultimate episode of the series. Uh, this is our last guest librarian of the series. We've had uh, Nish Kumar and Jimmy Carr. Today we have Angela Barnes. And I'm going to preface this. Uh, Barnesy will be here in a minute. But I'm going to preface this. Barnesy has told me that compared to Jimmy and Nish, none of her references are going to be, in her words, cool. <laughs> what does that even mean? Well, that's it. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to see the type of people that Angela Barnes suggests for the reading this because she's already said that uh, that it's not going to be cool. So I cannot wait to see what Barnes he thinks is cool, what Barnes he thinks isn't cool. Um, Angela Barnes is a brilliant comedian, does loads on uh, TV, loads on radio for. Um, but also has been around in the circuit for a while and also ran gigs on the circuit before becoming a stand-up comedian as well. So I think it's going to be really interesting. We'll get a very different perspective of the type of comics that, uh, that Angela likes and influenced her. But I also want to talk to her, and this is something that maybe me and you have spoken about a little bit. I want to talk to her about competitions as well, because Angela Barnes won the BBC new act competition i'm going to say it was something like 2012 2013 she'll tell me if i'm wrong what do you know about comedy competitions ricky um well the only thing i know is that at some point relatively early on in your career 
you uh, should probably consider doing a competition because it's good for exposure. It can make link you up with people who can help you out. And um, also, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a good thing to do for your skill and stuff like that. And like, it seems like a lot of the people who are successful comedians now won some sort of competition at some point or were a finalist at some point. Uh, that seems like a general trend. Do you know sort of the names of the most popular competitions? Yeah, yes, there's uh So You Think You're Funny, is that one? Yeah, that's one. The BBC New Comedy one, as you just said, I'm cheating. Yeah. And that is all the ones that I know. Okay, the other one which will be really good for you will be the Chortle Student one. Oh, yeah, yeah, Chortle. Um, so that's a good one. And also the Amuse Moose. Hmm. Uh, that's quite a popular one uh, in London. There's a lot of them. There's a bath one when the bath comedy festival is around. There's a lot of competitions, um, and I I don't think they're crucial. I don't think they are necessary. But um, as well as talking to Angela about uh, the reading list and the things that she'll suggest, we might as well take this opportunity, having someone that's won one of the biggies, uh, <laughs> to talk to her a little bit about what it's like to be in a competition. Yeah, yeah. And I want to ask, like, at what point she thinks you should do it, and when it's good to do it and stuff and when it's good not to do it yeah oh, exactly yeah might, <laughs> she might be like for you ricky because you're shit avoid it <laughs> yeah exactly. have, you, have you met angela or have you gigged with angela no i haven't i literally i've never met her but i saw she's gonna be at lakota in um in a couple of weeks she is and she's also uh she does mock the week as well so um yeah i think oh yeah i'm a big fan of her this is the thing that i think we're gonna We'll probably discuss this in the last episode uh, because the next episode, and hopefully you will listen to this soon. Uh, well, hopefully you listen to this before we have done the next episode because the next episode is a questions thing from anything you've ever wanted to know about comedy. Send in that message, send in that question over Twitter, over however you can get hold of uh, Ricky and I. Preferably Ricky, because I want Ricky to ask those questions to me and our guest, who is a super famous comic and a really good comic. Um, but I want you to ask generic questions. And Ricky, have you already got questions coming in from people? Or have you already got questions that, that you are hoping to ask? Yeah, I've, I mean, I've written down all of my questions. I've also asked uh, a bunch of people that I know listen to the podcast, any questions that they have. I've also had a couple of people actually message me asking about uh, how to get into comedy because now that I have a podcast, apparently I'm someone who can give advice. Um, uh, and, and have you told people to listen to the podcast? Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Imagine if I was like, oh, I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a couple, I've got a lot, quite a few questions actually uh, about stand up in general. And you know, I'm going to unload all of them when we do it. That's what I want. I want every single one. We'll probably do it as like a quickie thing. We might even we might even have to do it as a two part. That'd be exciting if we get so many questions. Uh, so we'll, we'll maybe we'll do it as a two part so people don't have to listen to the whole bloody thing. So every question that comes in, I want to make sure that every single person we try and answer their question as closely as we can. Yeah, yeah, as closely as possible. So that's the final episode. That'll be episode 10. This is episode 9. We're going to get right into it. Um, so this is 
the amazing Angela Barnes as the guest librarian in the reading list as part of, I mean, we've got like five titles coming up now. <laughs> this is Mark Oliver and Ricky Macindo with our guest Angela Barnes, the guest librarian in the reading list for Oh Captain, My Captain. Uh, that'll be a word title. Uh, so we are joined uh, today for Oh Captain, My Captain by the wonderful Angela Barnes. Hello, Barnesy. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Angela Barnes, meet Ricky Macindo. Hello, Ricky, how are you? I'm good, Angela, how's it going? It's, I'm good, it's good to meet you, Ricky. I've heard lots about you from Mr Mark Olver, so it's good to virtually meet you. Oh, He's a lovely boy that Finn Taylor described as are you another one of Olver's weird projects? Well, I did. I did want to say. I just want to check. Like maybe, maybe Olver, if you could look away for a minute, just, just, just blink twice if you're being groomed and you need. To that's, that's my concern. He makes me say, "Oh, Captain, my Captain." Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I first, oh, okay, so Olver's got this young comic, has he? Right, that he's mentoring. Yeah, yeah I've heard that. Before. But this um, is the this is the thing. I've decided that I didn't want to groom him on my own. I've decided to get all of the comedy industry. Oh, so we're all complicit in it. To get, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy Carr groomed him in the last episode of uh, the reading list. So he's being groomed by the best. <laughs> Basically, what you're saying, Oliver, is if you're going down, you're taking all of us with you. Is that Absolutely. hundred percent. Right? Okay. The German, <laughs> the German comedy circuit got in touch with me, and they said the British comedy circuit is too successful. Can you take it down from within? And I went, absolutely. <laughs> so I am the inspirational teacher. Um, hi, um, Ricky is I my. So I feel like what it should be is I am the self-proclaimed inspirational teacher. I'm not sure that's something you're allowed to call yourself. Do you know what? That's a really good point. No one has brought that. This is episode nine, and no one has <laughs> said that I'm not allowed to proclaim myself as the inspirational <laughs> teacher. This has been the whole thing. Um, Ricky, uh, do you find me inspirational? Yes, I find you inspirational, Mark. Convincing. I'm convinced. What do you say, Ricky? <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain. There you go. <laughs> it's episode nine. I finally learned. If you want to go far in this business, you need to do that. <laughs> We've got the cameras off, but I'm really hoping that Ricky's standing on a table right now. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> but you our so you, you are doing the reading list and you are our guest librarian because basically um and do you know what i'm guessing you were like this at school i'm guessing you were the person i'm guessing you spent a bit of time in the library i bet i'm guessing you made friends with the librarians <laughs> i mean i'd love to be offended by that but you and i both know that's true and not just the librarian <laughs> over the dinner ladies too let's be honest <laughs> They were my playground friends. <laughs> so the reading list is all about the comedy that you like, the comedy that you were into, but also the comedy that you think new acts and newer acts should be into. Um, and we've had Jimmy Carr do it and we've had Nish do it. And but you told <laughs> you told me that you weren't that you felt a bit weird about it. And you your exact words were, none of mine are gonna be cool. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, right, the thing is, when you asked me to do this, and I was like, yeah, that sounds really fun. And then I looked at who you'd had on, and you've had Finn Taylor and Nish Kumar, and I'm like, oh, oh, and Jimmy Carr, he's had all the cool kids on. 
ah, shit, that's not me. And, you know, Ricky's young and cool. And I just feel a little bit like, do I lie and pretend I like things that I don't? Or do I go, do you know what? I like round the horn. Fucking deal with it. Um, <laughs> let's be honest. Stand-up comedy is kind of the refuge of uncool people. So let's not mess around. I, well, this is part of my problem now, you see. Because it definitely... Stand-up comedy was somewhere you could go when you were deeply uncool and weren't pretty, right? <laughs> and that has changed, and I don't like it. Because now we've got, you know, I love Joel Domit. I think Joel Domit's very funny. But go and be a fucking pop star. <laughs> <laughs> Let us have something. Yeah, but, but Barnsley, you do have stuff. Like, you like you do you do telly, you do radio, you, you, you're successful at gigs. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't have opportunities because Joel Domit's taken them all. That's not my point. But my point is, stop making people think that comedians can be pretty because... We don't want people to think that. We want them to think that comedians, you know, we're the outcasts. And, <laughs> yeah, no, we absolutely are. Yeah, no. John Domit is not an outcast of anything. He's gorgeous, he is gorgeous. <laughs> he knows I love him, by the way. I mean, I'd say all this to his face. But um... Joel Domit is probably an outcast at Greg's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joel Domit, I suppose, in a way, is an outcast in comedy for that very reason. <laughs> That's a very meta situation. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Yeah, we've absolutely found the end of the circle and we've stuck them both together. But so we're going to talk about your reading list in a minute. But before yeah. we talk about the reading list, one of the things that we talked about a little bit in the preamble, and it's something that hasn't come up in any episode is about competition so ricky has done 22 gigs right so he also barnsley was born in 1998 so um, you know you just need to give me a minute to have a little cry absolutely no problem whatsoever <laughs> you know what's most upsetting about that is that i could be his mum without even being like a slag like i, <laughs> I wouldn't even be a teenage mum that's what's upsetting about it Oh. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. In Maidstone, you would have had Ricky, if I'm honest, slightly later than anyone else in Maidstone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My friends would have had grandchildren by the time I had Ricky. That's... <laughs> but he's a he's a young boy. And I just, I wanted, before we get onto the reading list, I wanted to talk about, so you were in the BBC competition. Now, I said you won it in 2000. What did I say, Ricky? 2013? Am I wrong, Barnsley? You're wrong. It was actually, it was 10 years ago. It's 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. 10 years ago in June. Before I did my GCSEs. <laughs> oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you agreed to do something out of the kindness of your heart. <laughs> what was it like doing competitions? What was it like? Uh, did you do all of them? I, re I didn't so I never did so you think you basically what happened so I when I started I did the Jill Edwards stand-up comedy course at Comedia sort of same one that Jimmy did same one that um Sean Walsh did loads of people did and she part of the thing that she told us then was be careful with comedy competitions when you're starting and I think that was really good advice because the problem with comedy competitions is you can go you know, oh, brilliant, that's stage time, that's a place to practice, learn my craft. But the problem is that quite often in comedy competitions, they're reviewed. So if you're really just starting out and you haven't quite honed your first five minutes yet and you're, you know, you're not quite there, that review will be online forever. And so when you come to start booking, you know, when a bit further down the line, you come to start booking gigs or whatever, 
you know, people will Google your name and you've got some review of some obscure competition you did when you were five gigs in, it's not going to help you very much. So um, the only, and I, the other thing that, that Jill Edwards, who's the tutor from this course, she always says to her students about me. So I go back and do like Q and A's with her students and stuff now. And the thing she always says about me is that I went quickly in comedy by going slowly. Um, because people, you know, I, from my first open spot to winning the new comedy award was 18 months, but I never did anything until I was ready to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, mm. you know, I wouldn't do a 10 minute spot until I knew I had 10 minutes that worked. And by doing that, what you don't, you don't burn any bridges that way. So I think a lot of people go, well, I've got eight minutes. I can wing the other two. Then they go and die on their ass because they're trying to pad out a set. And that booker won't book them again for two years. Whereas I was getting booked again two months later because I don't, you know, so it's going quickly by going slowly is what she always says. And, and it was the same with competitions. So I never, the only, I mean, this sounds awful, but the only competition, I entered two competitions and one of my one and I never needed to do one again. Is that, so is that the importance of competitions? Like when you, when you won the BBC, did you then just did it just help with the career so you didn't need to do another competition yeah i mean the way i look at it i look at comedy competitions as like doing your gcse's right that when you're doing them when you're at that point in your career where you're doing the competitions they feel like the most important thing like they're life-changing and then but once you've gone past the bit of your career where you're doing comedy competitions no one ever says you know oh how did you get on in these comedy it takes you to the next level and then you don't have to worry about them again, if you see what I mean. Like doing your GCSEs. Once you're doing your A-levels or you're doing a degree, who gives a shit what you've got in your GCSEs? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I found them, like for me, the the winning the new comedy award changed my life, right? And that sounds corny to say it, but there's no doubt about it. it at the point when I won that, I didn't have an agent. I was still working. I, you know, that what that competition did for me was say, oh this is this is a viable path for you to be on um you know the, you're not because the other thing as well when you're an open spot and you're starting out i can remember going to open mic nights and there'd be um you know these acts would get up some of them have been on the open mic circuit for 10 years you know and they'd get up and they'd die on their ass and they'd come off stage having no idea that they died on their ass and and i i was convinced well that's probably what i'm doing you know i thought well i how how do I know I'm not just deluded <laughs> like these people are? <laughs> so winning that competition for me was sort of an outside person going, you're not deluded. You, you've, you know, you've got an ability. It's up to you now whether you... It was very much the start of a thing rather than the end of a thing. You know, it's like... Yeah, like, a validation that you're going in the right direction. Exactly, mm. exactly. And, and a sort of... That was the starting point of me going... Because the other thing, I was, you know, I was 10 years older than than Ricky is when I started. So I did my first open spot when I was 33. And so it was a case of, I had a, a lot to, you know, I had a career and so, but what I didn't have was uh, a partner or kids or, so by winning that competition was like, right, okay, I can now put all my eggs in this basket without jeopardizing anyone else, mm. you know? So like Ramesh, for example, Ramesh and I started at around the same time. and we were doing the competitions at the same time. Yes, I beat him in the BBC New Comedy Award, whatever. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we were doing things at the same time. So, but for him, he was a deputy headmaster of a school. He was married, he had a kid. It was a very different decision for him to make than it was for me. Because if I have, you know, if I had to live on baked beans for a year, once I gave up the day job, that's 
up to me. I didn't have those other results. And I, I think that's part of what drove Romesh because he had to make it. Mm. He had to because he'd given up so much, you know, and it's a good drive to have. Absolutely. So, uh, so we've talked about you doing the BBC Comedy Awards slightly older than other people, but you were a comedy fan for quite a while and sort of involved mm. in comedy as well before doing stand-up, weren't you? Yeah, so what I did was um, I'd been like involved in sort of community theatre and stuff was my thing. So and for a while I used to run comedy nights in the I was involved in something called South London Theatre and we ran comedy nights there. And and then I moved to Brighton and I started up a comedy night here that was called it was in a place called the Farm Tavern. And uh, so we called it the funny farm and it was just a little comedy night. And basically all it was, was a way, cause I loved comedy. I loved watching live stand up, and it was a way for me to see live stand up, you know, the, the standups I wanted to see, bring them to me. Um, and at which point I had no intention of ever being a stand up. I was just a big stand up fan. Um, yeah. So that's, that's how my sort of first involvement in the comedy circuit, if you like, was as a booker. Okay. So. Already, so we've had Nish and Jimmy do the reading list, and lots of theirs were HBO specials and albums and yeah. uh, all that sort of stuff. I get the impression that yours is probably going to come more from the live scene and probably more radio and stuff like that. But So who was the first stand-up that you remember going, oh, fuck, I like you? Well, the first, stand, the first live stand-up comedy I ever saw was I was um, 13 and my mum took me to see Victoria Wood at the Strand Theatre. And I loved watching comedy. We were a family who watched comedy together and listened to comedy on the radio together. Like it was, we, my mum and dad both huge comedy fans. And, um, and I loved Victoria Wood, I just loved her. And, but going to see her live was incredible because it was in a big theatre and she just, it was just this woman talking and had everyone in this room in the palm of her hand. And it was like magic. It was like watching magic happen is the only way I can describe it. And I didn't know how she was doing it because it wasn't, it wasn't like when you go and see music and it's like, oh, aren't they clever playing those instruments? And isn't that, oh, I see what, you know, it was just words and we all use words. Like how are her words doing this to people? Mm. It really, it really had a profound effect on me that. And, um, and yeah, so that was my first sort of like, this is amazing. And from when I was old enough, I would go to the comedy store, I would go to live comedy, watch live stand up circuit comedy as much as I could. I had I grew up in Maidstone in Kent, and my friend was a stage manager at the Hazlitt Theatre in Maidstone. So she used to sneak me in to watch. So I remember going to see like Adam Bloom do a solo show at the Hazlitt Theatre in the 90s and things like that. And, and I just wanted to be, and I can remember thinking like, oh, long before I did stand up, being like, I will never tire of this. I will never tire of watching stand up. It is the best feeling in the world. Now I do stand up. That's not true anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, I quite happily never watch someone do stand up ever again now. But <laughs> that's just what happens when you make the thing you love your job, isn't it? But um uh but yeah i i just was i loved the feeling of being in a group of people laughing it was like magic i didn't know how it was happening and i didn't think it was something i could do i wasn't a magician i just loved that feeling um ricky adam bloom is someone who i want to get on the next series 
of this podcast. Uh, are you aware of Adam Bloom? No, I've never never heard of him before. Literally never even heard the name. Okay, so I don't know. I, I, oh, Barnsley, I don't know if I should tell Ricky loads about Bloomy now or let him just, when he sees Bloomy for the podcast, just let him, that be his first. Yeah, let that, I, think, I think just let that wash over him. <laughs> Ricky, what do you know about Victoria Wood? What does Victoria Wood's name sort of say to you? Yeah, I've definitely heard the name before. And I think it was actually from one of the Netflix specials that Nish recommended, the Bridget Christie one. I think she says that Victoria Wood was like a massive inspiration to her or something like that. But um, apart from that, all I know is she was a reasonably successful comedian probably a few years before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> but realistically, that's kind of a general trend with these reading list episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's always kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember them. Wasn't it like 1993? Oh my god, you say that as if that was the Dark Ages. <laughs> oh my so I would say to put and and Barnsley might have a different one, but I think an audience with Victoria Woods should probably go on any reading list for yeah. for comedians. I, I think the, the only thing I would say about that is so those an audience with shows. Actually, I've got another one of them on my reading list, which is Billy Connolly's. Yes. Um, an audience with shows. Now, an audience with was an ITV show in the sort of 80s where what they would do, Ricky, is they would get loads of sort of celebs of the time mm. in the audience and the comedians would perform to them. And you oh. look at it now and it's very of its time and it is eggy as fuck. So you have to sort of bear that in mind. But I think if you can watch it with that in mind and also going, how hard a gig is that to do, you know, to do stand up to Wincy Willis, you know, like because all the celebrities in the audience, they're not really giving a shit about the stand up. They're more giving a shit about am I on camera? Can they see me? Am I getting screen time? You know, it's it's such a hard gig. And the fact that Victoria Wood and um, Billy Connolly, Billy Connolly, particularly his one's incredible. Um, the the routine about the Archers theme tune is outstanding. Um, but the fact that you... I mean, there was a series, a Victoria Wood series called As Seen on TV, which was a mixture of stand-up and sketches and songs. And just watch those. They're incredible. The, the Channel Swimmer sketch is the one that's on my reading list. Mm. Um, it is the most beautiful piece of just observational stand up with just the hugest dollop of pathos that you've ever seen in your life but done so well and it's so funny yeah oh yeah we i mean we a hundred percent have to put um victoria wood on the other thing as well is that often in this country we think about stand-up started in 1979 because that's when the comedy store opened and comedy strip opened in in london but actually lots of the people that we talk about sometimes like billy Connolly and victoria wood were already doing that sort of stuff mm. before, like mid seventies, late sixties, even. Mm. And it's really interesting when you, you look at a whole generation of comedians, and uh, Angela Barnes and Mark Olver are very similar in age. Although Olver is older, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> I am considerably older, but we, but we are of the Channel Four sort of comic strip 
generation, aren't we? We are sort oh, of totally. French and Saunders, we're Rick Mayo, we're Aid Edmondson, we're Saturday Night Live with Ben Elton. Like that is yeah. our generation. Gloria Wood was earlier than that. And I think that's yeah. really important to always remember. And that she came from, uh, and there's very there's few comics that successfully made that transition from that real. So she was playing the northern club circuit, you know, and she was playing very much as a musical comedian. She was a gifted pianist and and would write comedy songs and stuff. And she made that sort of transition when a lot of those comics fell by the wayside with the sort of wave of of so called you know alternative comedy in the eighties. she made that trans. She still retains popularity through that because she wasn't like those work, you know, those club comics that were punching mm. down or that were. She wasn't one of those. And actually, a lot of the alternative comedy, she was doing it before they were observational, you know, working class observational comedy. She was doing long before those people at the comedy store were. Um, you know, and, and was a real pioneer of that style, actually. But I don't think she gets enough credit for that. A, because she's a woman, so people didn't really notice her. And B, because people remember the songs more than they remember Yeah, the no, absolutely. I was just about to say her and Billy Connolly, but Billy Connolly, it's easier for people to think of Billy Connolly as this kind of stand-up god, almost. And I don't even think this is hyperbole, almost like the British Richard Pryor. <laughs> He he had such a an unapologetic working class upbringing in the tenements of Glasgow that that Victoria Wood didn't have. You know, I think it had a much more middle class. You know, she had piano lessons and went to a nice school. You know, so it was a bit different. He was so unapologetically rough around the edges that, um, and that was something so to do observational comedy about that hadn't really been done. You have working class comics, but they were, you know, doing mother-in-law jokes or whatever. Whereas he was talking about, you know, growing up in a tenement building in Glasgow and, and working on the shipyards and things like that. And it was observational. It was fun. And people recognized themselves in it, you know, but him and Victoria Wood, they did that thing where they just reflect your life back to you through this sort of prism of comedy. That, the most wanky sentence I've ever said in my life, but <laughs> did, you know, and it was though all they were doing was showing you what was in your life, but making it funny rather than bleak. Is that in a like a Jerry Seinfeld kind of you way, or is that in a Richard Pryor um, look at my life? Isn't it so different to yours? Doesn't it make you reflect on everything? It's, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, I don't think ever had a hard life, and you know, that's not. <laughs> I don't think in that same way, you know, it's that it's that being able to talk to. So, yeah, Jerry Seinfeld in the 90s was doing, you know, airline food. What's that all about? Yeah. Whereas Billy Connolly was talking to people who couldn't afford an air t- airline ticket ever. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. he was talking different. To, and that's where I think the the clubs, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of criticism of, of comedy being a middle class pursuit and it's bullshit like comedy came out of the working classes and the middle class element didn't really come in until alternative comedy, ironically, really, where people at universities and stuff started doing comedy. And, and that's where it became suddenly this sort of um, th- this more middle class flavor to it. Mm. Um, but actually, I think comedy is the great. Like, it's the only art form and I'll call it an art form, even though, you know, there's arguments to be had about is it art entertainment who gives a shit <laughs> but it's the only one really that is 
accessible to all class. You go to a comedy club on a Friday night, it's it's all classes are there. You know, that doesn't happen in a theatre. Yeah. Yeah, there's very few barriers to entry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there is comedy for everyone. You know, there is a, yeah, yes, if you're a Radio 4 listener, you might be more likely to go and see one of my shows at a theatre than you are to see, um, you know, go to the your local, uh, I was going to say jonglers, they're, they're gone, uh, <laughs> local glee club on a Friday night and just see whoever's on or whatever. So th- there really is something for everyone in comedy. It's a great sort of leveller. Have you listened to any Billy Comedy rookies? Um, no, I haven't. The only that um, that I've listened to is the one that Nish recommended. I can't remember which one it was, but I think it was actually the audience with. It was the audience with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is it that one? Oh, is he already beat me to it? Fuck you, really. Yeah, see, you are cool, Angela. <laughs> I am cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but actually, I, I mean, I think we, we, we touched on Billy Comedy with, with Nish. I think the thing for Billy Comedy with me is... And it's the difference between Victoria Woods and Billy Connolly is to me, Victoria Woods felt written. So although she was working class, although she was talking about normal things, and although she looked like you would watch her with your parents, you know, so I, I don't know why she screams Sunday nights to me, but it does scream Sunday, Sunday night before going to school on a Monday with me. It felt <laughs> written. So although she felt achievable and attainable because she was talking about the things that we talked about it was still written whereas billy Connolly felt like it came out of nowhere like it didn't feel obviously it was written but the way he performed it was so much about his personality that it made you think oh shit anyone can do that yeah and also but what billy Connolly was i think that is different to Victoria Woods is exactly that that she you know she was very a, a, an incredible writer though is it Gary Delaney who says that thing there's two types of comics there's comics that are really good at writing that have to learn to perform and comics that are really good at performing that have to learn to write mm. and I think that is the fundamental difference between Victoria Woods and Billy Connolly wow. I think she's an incredible writer who had to learn how to translate that to the stage but I think Billy Connolly is a natural performer and storyteller. He was a folk musician who would do banter in between songs. You know, that's how it started. And you watch him on, I mean, watch Billy Connolly on Parkinson. That's how you see. So Parkinson was a chat. I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to explain. You <laughs> um, I was going to let it go. I was going to be like, oh yeah. God. <laughs> Parkinson was a chat, a famous chat show uh, in Britain and, and Billy Connolly was regularly a guest on it and was hilarious. There was a, I remember him, it was in a conversation with Parkinson, the bit that he did. Uh, I mean, how many people, how many comedians have a famous bit that came out of not a stand-up show, but a chat show? <laughs> You know, and he had that bit about um, uh, it was about drinking and about how your legs get drunk before you realise you're drunk. I, I, obviously, I'm not doing it justice because I can't remember exactly how it went. <laughs> but, um, you know, and it was just hilarious. I remember watching it. You know, it's that thing of like you don't think you're drunk until you try and stand up. And, you know, but that was just in a it was an incredible routine. It was just in a chat show. The thing I always liked about Billy Connolly and because he lied. So he would always say, oh, it's, it's always different every night. Oh, I never write it down. Mm. Or, and it almost makes people think he made it up on the spot. Mm. And obviously, us as comics, we know that that's bullshit. <laughs> we yes. know that. But his skill is making it look as if he's made it up on the spot, which is one of those things 
that is just so beautiful. And I imagine, I never saw him live actually, and I can say that because I think he's retired from doing stand up now, but he, I never saw him live. But people would say that, you know, it did have that magic. But at the same time, he still worked on that stuff. He was still a grafter. Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's, I remember, it's funny, when I started dating Matt, I was already a stand up when we got together. And I remember him going, oh, sort of the penny dropping with him like oh comedians lie because <laughs> oh. it's sort of it, it's this i think we have a pact don't we with the audience that you're going to believe what i say even though you know deep down that some of it's bullshit that i've you know embellished and i've done whatever i've done to make it funny and even though deep down you know that i'm saying this every night you're going to suspend that disbelief because you want to enjoy the night and be part of it and, and you want to buy into that and i think that and it's only when you actually make an audience member think about it that they go oh actually it's a, i've been tricked it's a trick you know and i do think that's um that's why i have a real bugbear and i know that this is a really fashionable thing this is how old i'm going to sound now it's a really fashionable thing for young comics to do <laughs> i have a real bugbear about comics doing routines about other gigs they've done. Oh. Because I feel like you have a sort of unspoken pact with the audience that you're all going to pretend that this is magic and unique and just for you. And if I do a whole routine about how I told these same jokes two nights ago, you know, and then this guy in the audience said this, and I came back with my brilliant, I go, oh, you've broken it. You've broken the magic. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. What yeah. I would say is, um, I will do anything to get a laugh. So I will break every <laughs> single rule. Uh, if I think if I think it works, I am I am breaking that rule. I, I believe in that rule. I am with you in that rule. Angela Bar I'm gonna get little wristbands. What would Angela Barnes do? I'm absolutely happy with that. I'm also quite happy to not look at that wristband at all just to get the laugh. Yeah. I understand that. And do you know what? There's probably been an occasion where I've done it, but what I haven't done is written a routine about my clever comeback to another heckler on another night. Yeah. That's just my bugbear to me. Really if we're talking bugbears, yeah. um, this is one of mine, uh, the fake mistake. Ugh. Fake mistake. Yeah. So like when a comedian says something by mistake, but actually it was planned the whole yeah. time. Yeah, so they might stutter over a word or they might accidentally say something and then and they're like, Oh, this is a lovely place. Oh, I didn't mean place. I meant space. Place? What? I'm just looking at a fish. This is a lovely fish. And then they go on to a yeah. ten minute routine about fish. about fish. Absolutely. Like... <laughs> like... Absolutely. And I, you know, there's part of me that like you say though, you go, gets a laugh, gets a laugh, you know, and there's things that but there yeah, there's some things that are just um little bug we all have our little bug bears don't we but yeah. at the same time if audience if it works for an audience and they enjoy it then that does sort of validate it a bit Absolutely. yeah no i have i have one too but it's very very hypocritical oh your bug bear yeah yeah it's very hypocritical oh look 22 gigs in he's got a bug bear yeah. oh no this is exciting <laughs> i hope it's not mark over <laughs> older comedians grooming younger comedians i hate <laughs> They need to cut that out of the industry. <laughs> it's when, and this is, it's kind of hypocritical, but it's when people fake laugh on stage. Because I laugh all the time, but it's like when I can tell, like, I know that's just inserted there for the sake of effect. I I don't like, 
I, again, another bugbear, but I don't like people laughing at their own jokes on stage. <laughs> I'm like, that is not your job. If you have to signify to the audience that they should be laughing by laughing, then the joke wasn't fucking funny enough. Yeah, I see that. But I, I think like what Jimmy said on one of our other podcasts was like, it's a nice thing to let your laugh out. But for me, I'm not even laughing mm. at my own joke because I think that would be a bit tragic. For me, I'm laughing at their reaction. And like the difference between that and I guess my comedy bugbear is when I see comedians laugh in the exact same place every night, that to me annoys me. But if you just laugh when it's natural on stage, then I get it because I am very good. Some people are smiley, laughy people as well. Like if that's part of your persona, then I don't mind so much. Do you know what I mean? Like if that's sort of your... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in this last 40 minutes, how many times have I laughed? I am this podcast's co-host, editor, and laugh track. <laughs> yeah. If I, whereas I'm, I'm the miserable asshole. So if I came on stage and laughed at my jokes, that would look really weird. <laughs> so there's a thing, uh, there's a thing, Ricky, called a tell. Mm. And uh, what a tell is, and we've talked about it a little bit with the Chappelle hitting his microphone yeah. on his thigh. Yeah. But a tell can be as simple as you do a joke, you want the laugh, you've done the punchline, and while the audience are laughing, you take a sip of your water, you take a sip of your drink, you uh, rearrange your glasses. Um, and a tell is almost a signifier of, I finished that now, please laugh. <laughs> and uh... and if you do it properly, it's almost like hypnotizing the audience a little bit into laughing. And some people use their laugh as a tell. Some people laugh at their own stuff and they find it funny. I think Jimmy Carr said that, you know, I I am one of my own favourite comedians. So I just laugh at myself. <laughs> and because he's got that laugh. Mm. And it also maybe gives the audience the permission to laugh, especially at some of the, the darker stuff. But mm. some people use... A tell is a really interesting well, thing. I, that I think sometimes you'll tell... So I know I've got I've got a tell but it's totally involuntary and I don't know I'm doing it, but I know I am doing it because when I look back at, like when I watch myself, I see myself do it. And that is pushing my glasses up my nose. Okay. So at the end, I'll do a punchline, push my glasses up my nose, next one. And I don't even know I'm doing it, but I, do, I remember there was a couple, a little while ago, I did a gig and the venue was really humid and hot. So I had to take, my glasses were steaming up. So I had to take my glasses off, right? And I took my glasses off, put them in my pocket, carried on, and I found myself just pushing <laughs> my nose <laughs> as if my glasses were there. And that's when I went, oh, that's a weird tick you've got there because you've literally just got to push up your glasses that are not on your face. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I was like, oh, this is a tick. This is, yeah, that's completely involuntary. It- I always find when I, I don't watch myself too much, but I, I always, I don't think it's a tell. But the way I use my hands and my fingers, I'm absolutely gobsmacked about my hands and fingers when I'm on stage. We all are, Mark. Yeah, do you know, I don't know. I mean, I genuinely don't know if other people perceive it, but I'm doing it. And I'm like, holy shit, what is going on? I can't, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, thank fuck, he does know. I'm not thinking that. I, I, I genuinely can't picture what it is that you do with your hands or your fingers. I think we all have our tips. Um, so we've done, we, Victoria were Billy Conley. Yes. Is there anyone else that you would, if you were talking to a new comic, let's say they were a young man who's a medical student at Bristol University called Ricky, who you would recommend 
comedians do. Who who else do you think would be a good person for for Ricky to to listen to or watch? Well, I mean, I think that the best like the best people to watch, particularly when you're starting out, are circuit comics, right? It's all very well to go, oh, watch Bill Burr's latest. Actually, don't watch, don't ever watch Bill Burr's specials, but that's a whole other thing. Oh. But um, <laughs> you know, to, oh, watch this guy, watch that guy. But I think actually. I've seen too many open spots where you watch them and go, oh, the only comedy they've seen is HBO specials. Mm. That's why they're doing this and it's not working. Mm. Right? Because there's a big difference between an edited HBO special and being on the coal face in a comedy club. right? Mm. And you've got to learn how to do the first before anyone's going to let you do the second. Right. You've got until you can work the coal face in a comedy club. No one's giving you an HBO special. Mm. where you'll have edited and they'll sort it all out so you have to learn how to play a room that's in front of you before anything and the only place you're going to learn to do that is in comedy clubs watching good circuit comics right yeah um and uh i i'm a real believer in there's no shortcuts to being the comic you want to be and also i i believe that you the comic that you are isn't necessarily the comic that you want to be. So, for example, the co the comedy I like watching is not the comedy I do necessarily. Right? Mm. So, um, because you can only be what you can be, you can only be the performer that you are, and your voice, your persona, all of whatever you want to call it, will find you. And I think if you try too hard to formulate what that's going to be when you're starting out, you paint yourself in a corner too quickly. Um, and I remember learning what my persona was through reading reviews. I had no idea what my persona was. And it was when I started getting reviews and the same words kept coming up, you know, like self-deprecating, world weary, this, you know, then I was like, oh, that's what I am. Okay, mm. that makes sense. Yes, that is what I am. But it, it, if I'd sort of started out and gone, okay, I want to be a deadpan comic. Well, that's not what I am. So, or not what I'm good at. If I was good at that, that's what I would have done. Does that make sense? So you don't want to paint yourself into a corner too soon. I think you just let your style find you. I, I think that um, comedies are like if you look at it like being an artist. Yeah, Picasso had to master fine art before he could do what Picasso does right you couldn't mm. you didn't you can't just be Picasso you have to have the toolkit you have to learn how color works you have to learn how you know art works before you can play with the form and I mm. think comedy is the same you have to learn what a joke is you have to learn what elicits a laugh you have to learn you know about breaking tension you have to learn about structure and all of these things and then once you've learned that then you can play with the form but if you go straight in going, well, I've watched uh, James Acaster on Netflix and I want to do that, <laughs> you're fucked. Because let me tell you, like, I knew James Acaster when he was a brand new open spot because I used to book him for gigs before I did stand up. And that man is the hardest working man in comedy. What you see on his Netflix special didn't just happen. Yeah. You know, that was 10 years of doing shit gigs and learning from them and recording every gig. He used to stay at my house quite a lot, James. And I remember I'd come down in the morning, I'd go to work in the morning and James would already be up, sat at the breakfast table, listening to a recording of the gig the night before and making notes, you know? He wow. worked his arse off to get there. And I think the danger with going, yeah, watch all these amazing guys on telly is you go, 
you don't see the path to that you just mm. see the end result and think you can do that and replicate it yeah do you can't. do you think like because uh, this is a trend that i've been noticing from doing this podcast do you think like mm. successful comedians are the ones who work hardest or is there like 100 percent? yeah interesting interesting there's no shortcuts there's no shortcuts to a to longevity in comedy i don't think i think you can there are flukes you can luck out you can you know have something go viral or whatever and then suddenly everyone wants you but if you haven't got the chops you're not going to last long like comedy audiences jerry seinfeld said this if you um you know that thing about he's Jerry Seinfeld, right? So you'd think, well, he could just go on stage and read the phone box. It'd be funny. And he says that the level of fame he has buys him five minutes at the top of a gig. Wow. After five minutes, if he hasn't been funny enough, all that goodwill is gone, you know? Mm. So you, you've got to have something to back it up with. It's not good enough just to go, you know, well, I did that before. Remember the last show I did, that was really funny. You really liked that. So therefore you're going to like this show. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be, constant and that only comes from graph it's also really interesting because barnsley talks about the idea of of working your way through the circuit and it doesn't come quickly the problem is a lot of the time people will see chris ramsey or joel domit or josh ridicum mm. appear on their telly and they look young or are young or move young and so people think wow they're young they've, they've just popped on my telly yeah. but like jack was performing from he was 15 like mm -hmm. ramsey was up in newcastle doing gigs you know loads of gigs before anyone knew who he was it's the mickey flanagan thing when mickey flanagan suddenly was on telly everyone like who's this guy he's appeared from nowhere he's brilliant he'd been on the circuit for over a decade wow. before he did any telly, mickey flanagan you know people think that when you're on telly that's the start of your career they they haven't seen the 10 years before that <laughs> yeah like there's this weird thing that people do where um they assume that because they haven't heard of someone that means they're not a successful comedian or they're not a, a professional <laughs> the other thing as well is that as someone very much like barnsey as someone that loves the circuit we know that the opportunities that sean walsh has had to be funny on tv are nothing like the opportunities sean walsh has had to be funny in the clubs like mm. well she's a brilliant comic and he's great on tv but holy fuck he's amazing when you see him live and so many comedians are like that oh but that's the other thing that people watching telly at home who particularly people who never go to comedy clubs or haven't been to comedy clubs or whatever they of course they don't realize the difference between watching live at the apollo on telly and and watching live stand-up they don't realize a there's an edit process B, that, that that comedian on stage usually has very little say on that edit process. You know, the amount of yeah. times I've watched I've watched stand-up back that I've done on telly and you watch it. I mean, I don't watch it now, but I used to when I first started doing telly. And you watch it back, you're like, they cut half the joke out. They cut <laughs> half the joke out. Or, but there was a topper. They haven't put the topper in. They've just left it, you know, and all of that. It drives you mad. But people watching at home don't know that that's a process. So they think it's just not as good, you know. Um, and 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 people. I mean, the one that always gets me is the. Oh, did you hear the canned laughter on that? I mean, there's no <laughs> such thing in common as cat. The laughs are all recorded. Sure, they can be tickled up a bit. Sure, they can be put in different places. But people think that there's, you know, some that some editor just sits there with a button that says, right, laughs now. <laughs> it's not quite like that, you know. 
Um, I like it. I like that. I like it when people think there's candy after because that means that I have done my job as the warm up really well. Because, <laughs> because if they are complaining that there's too much laughter there, I just want. Well, I'm always like, yeah, that was mine. That was my mate. Deal with it. <laughs> I think stand-up on TV in general is quite a strange experience mm. because since I've started doing it, it's like, I I would say maybe like a recorded version of stand-up is like 60% of the experience. Like mm. it, being in the room and watching the comedy and being, because when you're in an audience, it's kind of like uh kind of like a hypnosis that everyone is just kind of in. Absolutely. Exactly. So if you're not present for it, then you're not really a part of that. So it's really easy yeah. to switch on a Netflix special and be like, oh no, that person is shit because I didn't laugh, but you weren't there. Like you didn't see yeah. Mark's warm up and you didn't see the whole show. Um, there are two people that you've not put on the reading list who I know you love, and I don't I mean, know I enough about. I haven't my reading list yet, so I might have them on my reading list. <laughs> you haven't put on your reading list yet, yet. <laughs> and I thought you would throw them in right at the beginning as your. I know one that you're going to say. Your greatest of all times, Jeremy Hardy and Linda Smith. Yeah, and they're both on my list. And the reason I haven't said them yet is that actually it's very difficult for ricky to find their stuff because there's not a lot of it out there so these are both people who and this is one of the reasons why i wanted to do the reading list if i'm honest because i wanted new comedians who might listen to this podcast and know about Chappelle and know about bill burr and know about russell howard and know about a caster but also for them to have their world open to mark thomas who i was a massive fan of uh in the 90s but people like Jeremy Hardy and Linda Smith, who I think yes. were amazing comics, but maybe because of, I don't know, the type of comedy they did, maybe listened to more on Radio 4 than yeah. seen on TV, I would say. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy was on telly a fair bit in the 80s and 90s, but yes. never sort of had that kind of... I think his style suited radio. Um, so... Radio 4 comedy is something I grew up with. And the, the the reason both Jeremy and Linda and Mark Steele are all on my list. Okay. Uh, the reason I haven't brought them up yet, if I was planning to, is because I know we want people that Ricky can access and look at. And, what, and it's very difficult. Um, the stuff is out there. But I also know, I'm also aware that Ricky's 23 and the minute I start talking about Radio 4, he's probably switched off and he's thinking about YouTube. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, there's part of me that... So, so I grew up listening to the news quiz on Radio 4 um, and it's a really... It's a, an emotional show. For, it's, that sounds so weird, I know, for a comedy show to be. But I've got a real emotional connection to it because I listen to it with my dad, who's no longer with us. And it, it was Linda Smith on it changed everything for me in a way. So, I, I, you know, Victoria Wood I'd seen live when I was 13. and went, this is amazing. But she, you know, I was also aware that she had these magical talents. She could play the piano. She could do all these things. Radio, growing up listening to Radio 4 comedy as I did, I loved it. But the only time 
women were on Radio 4 Comedy, were in bit parts in sitcoms. That was it. Mm. Right? It was all men as I was growing up, all men. Uh, particularly on the panel shows, all men, occasionally a very posh woman, <laughs> occasionally. And then this voice came out of the news quiz and she was from where I'm from. She was born 20 minute drive down the road from where I was born. And she sounded like she could be in my family. And I'd never heard my accent on Radio 4 before I heard Linda Smith. And she was so funny, just so funny, Linda. That, and. But in a way that, so one of the things, as a woman in comedy, and I don't want to ever say that sentence really, but it's a, it's a thing that if you're, you're not allowed to be, there's things you're not allowed to be that male comics don't have to think about, right? And when I say you're not allowed to be, I don't mean that you shouldn't be. I mean that people in their heads think you're not allowed to be. And one of them is angry. You know, you're not allowed to be angry. Pipe down, dear. You know, calm down, dear. Um, and what Linda did was she was an incredible satirist. She was a socialist and an incredible satirist, but she would do it in a way that the posh men around her, it completely took the rugs out from under them because she did it in a way that was so sort of uh, approachable and girl next door. And, and then suddenly there'd be a killer line that just floored them. And she could do that to the top politics. She could do that to Tory peers. She could do that to, and it was like watching a craftswoman, just incredible. And it was in, so she she started off um, sort of doing radical theatre in the eighties and she was like doing radical theatre and started doing stand up with people like Mark Thomas and Mark Steele and that to raise money for the miners during the miners strike and all of that. And you have Red Wedge and all of that stuff going on, which is all part of that alternative comedy movement. She was all part of that. And it was only really in the sort of mid to late nineties that she started appearing on telly a little bit. So she used to do Have I Got News For You. Um, and she's done like Room 101 and things like that. But she, as a radio personality, I mean, if I could be a millionth of the comic she was, I'd be happy with my career. She, she was just incredible. And it's weird. I have a very emotional attachment to, to Linda. Um, and her partner was a man called Warren Lakin. And one of the things on, see, we've not got the cameras on, unfortunately, but I've got two actual physical books in front of me. And one of them is a book called Driving Miss Smith by Warren Lakin. Warren, Warren was her partner. He was also he's a very good producer. He's just retired, but he's produced lots of comedy. Um, and he would sort of go to her, would get, drive her to gigs and stuff and was very much involved in her career. And this is a sort of memoir of their how they met and their life in comedy and, and radical theatre and all of that stuff. It's a really good book. Um, and when I started doing stand up, um, I would, uh, uh, you know, people from when I won the BBC thing and then people started interviewing me for things, they would always say, Oh, who's your influence? Who's your influence? And I would always say Linda Smith, always. And one day I got a phone call. In fact, it was when we were doing um, uh, stand up for the week over, and I was sat in my dressing room just before a record, like we'd have a little break, dinner break, record. And I sat and my mobile rang, right? Number I didn't recognize. And I answered it and it was Warren Lakin, Linda Smith's partner, right, who I'd never met. And he had got, he'd phoned my agent to get my phone number because he suddenly became aware that I was talking a lot about Linda. And he phoned me up and we were on the phone, I met for like half an hour. 
and he was just saying you know i'm really grateful that you're as a sort of upcoming comedian keeping linda's memory alive this is she died in 2006 and you know you're talking about her and and it's really nice to see that and and i i couldn't believe who i was talking like you know this was such an amazing thing and then he said to me would you like to see her archive and she had like so all of her notebooks her writing all her tour posters all like cassette tapes of recordings all of this stuff warren gave to the university of kent you know ollie double over yes who's a stand-up tutor at the university of kent and they've got a, a comedy archive there and he donated all into stuff to the archive and like a couple of weeks after i had this phone call he we i met him at uh the university of kent and we went in so i went with warren and he just got out all these boxes and it was all linda's notebooks and i mean i'd never got to meet linda that's the nearest i could it was a most i can't explain it it was just so emotional to go this person that i've admired for years and who is such a i'm there looking at her notebooks like her the inner workings of her mind and the 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 posters for the shows she did when she was a student and you know these cassette tapes recordings you got a little cassette player out and we would listen to these like you know like when she was an open spot these little recordings she would make of her stand-up and it, it was just the most profound incredible experience um so yeah linda smith jeremy hardy mm -hmm. more famous and and sort of more i suppose well known than linda smith yeah they were great friends great right friends. that was my next question whether they were in the same world as each other 100 percent. they were very good friends and so um i can read you a thing if i can find it. i mean i don't know how emotional you want to get on this but um jeremy died so linda died of ovarian cancer in 2006 and um jeremy also died of cancer in 2018 and um a lot of so i i worked so by this point i did news quiz i was a regular on news quiz and i would always sit next to jeremy when i was on news quiz so i got to know jeremy um and watching jeremy hardy work jeremy hardy is one of these people who is just effortlessly funny right and he's always on in that way like you go to, you do a recording with jeremy and then you go to the pub afterwards and you'd still be like like you'd just laugh all night and it wasn't in a show-off way it wasn't in a look at me way it just and i remember something really telling at his i went to his memorial uh after his funeral at, it was at battersea arts center and there were i mean you know you had like harry enfield got up and did a eulogy and you know he did it as loads of money it was brilliant <laughs> um, and you know there were all these incredible people there talking about him but the thing that really stuck with me was his sister got up he had two older sisters and one of them was a nurse and she'd gone off to do her nurse training when jeremy was still at home was 13 and she had this letter that he'd written her when she was at college when he was 13 and she read it out at his memorial and it was all there it was hilarious this and when she read that letter i went oh jeremy hardy didn't have to work hard at being jeremy hardy jeremy hardy just was jeremy hardy like those things he was he was really famous on news quiz for like the the these comical rants that were just brilliant and that and you go it was all just there he was just had a gift like you know um and and yeah him and linda were 
really good friends and and every year there's a show called loving linda which is um uh, in aid of target which is the ovarian cancer charity right and every year since i got to meet warren that i've become really good friends with warren and so he invites me i MC the gig quite often or i do a spot on it or whatever and it was when jeremy got diagnosed with cancer and a lot of us knew he had cancer and that he was really unwell before he didn't ever really go public with that until you know after he died obviously people knew but he was very private about it and we were doing a loving linda gig and um the i was emceeing it and jeremy was on the bill and we sort of knew deep down that he wasn't really well enough but he was determined he was going to do this gig and then on the day before he was like, I, I can't, I physically can't do it. And I'm gutted. And he said, if I, if I said to me, if I email you a message, will you read it out at the gig? Um, just to apologize for not, not being there. I said, yeah, of course I will. And, um, and the message was so Jeremy Hardy. Do you want me to read it to you? Oh yes. Please. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got it in front of me. Right. So uh, bearing in mind that, that the audience had no idea at this point that Jeremy had cancer and had no idea that, you know, that it was, terminal whereas i did have i did know that um and but this is so this is the message that that jeremy sent to to be for me to read out he just says i'm sorry i can't be there tonight i've been delayed in a meeting with radio 4's head of mirth suppression it's been a few <laughs> days now and it's been very helpful and clarified a lot of things for me and i'm hoping to be released sometime soon as it's been a very frightening time for my family Thanks to all who've come along tonight to have a right laugh while also feeling good about yourselves for appearing to care about stuff. We all do it. So don't, so don't feel like a hypocrite for expecting to be entertained rather than just being generous. <laughs> At least it's better than asking your mates to crowdfund your cycling holiday and claiming it's got something to do with curing heart disease. <laughs> Also, mm -hmm. thanks to all the turns who are at least doing what they do best rather than choosing a donkey sanctuary as their charity and appearing on celebrity baking on ice on fornication Island. <laughs> um, Linda was the funniest person I've ever known and was a national treasure in a way that Dame Judi Dench and Tommy Robinson can only aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> the strangers still approach me and say, I do miss Linda Smith, to which I'm tempted to reply, that's as maybe, but your heart wasn't ripped out the day she died, so fuck off and bother someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps that's harsh, but above all else, Linda was my friend and I loved her with all my heart and cancer ruins so many lives and anything we can do to give it a right fucking kicking is okay by me. Please take care of yourselves and hold on to your lives. They're very fragile. And that was, yeah. I know, yeah. Um, I know you were reluctant to put Linda Smith and Jeremy Hardy sort of on the reading list because it's difficult to find mm. stuff about or stuff that they've done to watch it. But and and between recording this and putting it out, Ricky and I will try and find as many links to as much stuff. There's there possible. is stuff out there, and there's a book. Jeremy Hardy's um, uh, wife, Katie, put out a book of like a lot of his writing, which is great. So do do read that. That's definitely on my reading list. Yeah, yeah, we'll find some links and then try to tweet them mm. out and stuff. People can see because they are amazing, and I and I do I I do want because one of the things I love about comedy is that uh, this it never ends. Discovering <laughs> stuff that you love. And I just think sometimes, although we're in an age where we can get everything so quickly now, it almost feels like the stuff we are getting. You know those algorithms on Netflix that show you the 10 best things to watch or the things that you will like? 
Yeah. They don't help you discover the things that... That you don't know yet that you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're like, no, 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 we, we want to help. That's why we want to curate this list and go, no, these are the people to listen to. These are the people yeah. that... Listen to the others as well, but don't forget your Linda Smiths. Don't forget your Jeremy Hardys. Don't forget Absolutely. your Adam Blooms and your uh, Ben Norrises and your Joe Colfields and, you know, yeah. all of those people who are amazing, but possibly not on the telly. Um, Angela Barnes, thank you so much for... Thank uh, you for having me. It's well, been fun. Thank you so much, Angela. It's been so good. This is it. This is what this podcast is all about. Just making people realise just how much we fucking love it. We yeah, love it. It's coming back. <laughs> uh, Barnsley, look out for yourself. We will set up a WhatsApp group with all the things that we weren't going to talk about on the show <laughs> and made the edit um, <laughs> that the lawyers were fine. But so we'll do it. We'll do it for three of us. Um, Thank you very much, and I'll see you soon. Uh, that was Oh Captain, My Captain. Thank you very much for uh, listening. I hope you found it useful. Um, I think you all know uh, what I'm going to say now, but uh, one of the things when you do podcasts is that uh, basically it, it, we want more people to listen to it because we think it's quite useful. Uh, Ricky, people can listen to it. I'm, I know they can listen to it on Spotify, and I listen to it myself to hear my own voice on pocket cast where else can people listen in well you can listen in at apple Podcasts. you can listen in at breaker pretty much anywhere you get your podcast really you can also listen to it at google podcasts which i did not know existed until i started doing this but just type in podcasts and wherever you get your podcast it'll be there and to help us um on all of those sites there are ways to subscribe and to review and say nice things correct yeah or unnice things i mean <laughs> any attention is good attention on the internet but yeah, best place to leave us a review is on Apple Podcasts. Just go to our page, scroll to the bottom and leave us a star rating. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you have anything you think we need to improve on. And follow us on Twitter at OCatMyCatPod and subscribe to us on Spotify. Basically, follow us everywhere, except in person, because that wouldn't be good. I mean, unless you're a massive fan. And uh, send in questions if you've got oh, questions, Captain, topics that you Captain. want us to talk about. Uh, re, uh, sort of refer oh, us and recommend us to your friends. And I think oh, that is the end of this bit Captain. of the podcast, correct? Yes, it is. It really, really oh, is. Captain, my Captain.